Alright guys, welcome to this week's podcast. We are doing part two of verbal behavior. We're covering the rest of the complex topic of verbal behavior, what it is, what it isn't, and then we are going to have 10 questions applying verbal behavior at the end, making sure you can go through those workflows, making sure you feel comfortable in this topic, going to be important. Make sure if you haven't, you watch Verbal Behaviors Part 1 before you listen to this Part 2, so that way you are ready to go and you're updated on where we're at with all these concepts and topics. So if you missed it last week, make sure you check it out. And just remember, like last week, a quick little recap, we talked about that speaker-listener relationship. We talked about the elementary verbal operands, what they are. We kind of talked a little bit about point-to-point correspondence and formal similarity, which ones those apply to and how they apply big topic, very complex stuff. So if you're feeling good about that, go ahead and listen to this podcast. If not, go ahead and listen to last week's again to make sure you've really got it solid. You're gonna need to know it for the exam. It's a tricky one, but if you're feeling good, let's go ahead and get into this week's podcast. This week, we're going to be focusing more on the application and talking about what it is, how to apply it, how do you train for it? How do you teach it? We know what it is. Okay, now what do we do? What's our next step? How do we be a BCBA when it comes to verbal behavior? That's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the big primary verbal operants, and then we'll kind of apply it as we go and what you guys need to know. You'll see. It's going to be great. Let's get into it. For mans, we know that mans are dependent on motivation. Yep. So the type of man it is is going to depend on what is motivating and reinforcing that man those two processes is going to determine is it unconditioned motivating operation? Is it a CMOT, CMOS, CMOR? You've got to look at the motivation, what that person is wanting in order to determine what type of man it is. Skinner slash Cooper talks about a lot of different mans that you can know and a lot of different types of mans that you can teach. You don't have to memorize them for exam from my understanding, but they're important to know as a BCBA, there's a lot of different types of demands for information, demands for questions. I'm gonna go ahead and redo the list of the demands. I think it's really interesting to know. We're gonna talk about how those demands can kind of be tricky when it comes to interverbals and how those can get mixed up. So you have demands for requests, demands to tell somebody to do something. So man for command is what Skinner called it. Manning for prayer, questions, advice, warnings, offers, permission, and calls. Remember, manning is not just for items and food. Many, I can man, hey, what's your name? That could be a man. If I'm requesting information from you, I'm wanting something from you, that's a man. And that's where it gets really tricky with introverbals. That's why you have to look at the motivation. You have to look at their point-to-point correspondence, is there formal similarity? That's why we are harping on these verbal offerings so much because that's the only way you can truly tell the difference between these. So when you're trying to teach a child answer personal information questions, now if you're having them then request information from the other person, you have to assess, is this a man for information or is this an interverbal conversation skill? Where is this coming in? It's all going to depend on the situation. It's all going to depend on the motivation of the speaker and the listener and their relationship in that conversation. You guys know that at this point. Understanding you've got to look at it. No assumptions. Remember I talked about this last week? No assumptions under any circumstances, guys. You got this. We have to use the information that is given to us in those exam questions and in real life. We cannot make up our own guesses or assume that they are motivated for that. 
know how that works. Like an example of an unconditioned motivating operation is you requesting a drink because you're thirsty or you requesting the air to be turned on because you're getting hot. If you are requesting to avoid or engage in particular behaviors that are based on your survival, that is a man, an unconditioned motivating operation. So remember, it could be to engage in things, it could be to not engage in things. So don't let negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement kind of trip you up. Because remember when we talked quite a few podcasts ago about how we have our three-term contingency, we have MOs, we have SDs, antecedents, behaviors, consequences, right? So remember, like, you can have an unconditioned motivating operation and positive reinforcement happening on that behavior, but those aren't like one thing or the other. You could have multiple things that are true. I remember that as well. Multiple things can be true with one statement. So when you're doing that exam question or when you are you know, looking at these situations real life, you have to look at what's the question asking? What are you wanting to do? What are you wanting to know? You shouldn't just be doing things because that's how you've always done it. You've always taught mans and you've always taught you know, two word mans and then you've always taught three word mans and now you put a carrier phrase and that's just how it is. Gotta look at the learner, you've gotta look at that speaker, that listener. Every child has their own skills, their own deficits, same thing for every adult. We all have our pros and cons and what we can do. Remember that when you are applying this information, especially for mans because they're so incredibly important. Make sure you're teaching those unconditioned motivating mans because that's what that person is gonna be naturally motivated for. Like if we're thirsty, we want a drink, we're much more likely to ask for that drink. First, if you're trying to get me to man for something, I don't really care about like you know, my phone or a pen. Good luck trying to get me. You have to entice me. You have to convince me that I really want that. Whereas like a drink of water, if I want to drink water, I want to drink water point blank. That's that naturally motivating occurring opportunity where if we are trying to teach a basic communication, like first few words, if we can capture those basic motivating, unconditioned, motivating operations and getting somebody to have that internal motivation of I'm thirsty or I'm hungry, I'm going to ask for you know, chips or I'm going to ask for a pop. That's huge. That's communication. That's like, that's a person being able to live on their own and being able to communicate with their caregiver. Those different skills are huge. Those always a great place to start. I do want to make a little keynote in here because if we start trying to withhold deprivation or even satiation, if you're trying to overwhelm somebody with you know their primary needs, you've got a huge ethical like flash that should be popping in your eyes and your head. You and this is where the conversation of edibles comes in, which we're not going to get into that because there's a lot of very strong opinions on that, a lot of different research on that, but. That's where that conversation comes in. We shouldn't be withholding food or drinks from a child in order to get them to man. Obviously, picking up their package of fruit snacks and trying to prompt a response and then giving them that fruit snack after we provide an air correction or something is okay. However, we shouldn't be like, well, you didn't ask, you don't get your snack. Or you were bad today, so you don't get your lunch. We have, like, every human has a right to eat and drink and be warm and have shelter, things like that. So keep that in mind when you're looking at, you know, these treatment options and you're looking at implementing different things, make sure you're being ethical and fair. No matter how 
you know, great, you think it'll work for that man if you could just get them desperate enough for something. You shouldn't be withholding water all day long just so that way, right after lunch, so motivated, so they're finally gonna ask for it. Not ethical, we don't wanna do that. And the same thing for like a CMOR, so that's kind of signaling that aversive thing that is going to be happening and termination of that aversive event. So if I'm manning for you to go away because I don't like you and you're walking up to my house or you know, you're being too loud and I say, go away, I'm tired of seeing you, and I get reinforced for that, that's a great learning opportunity that occurred naturally and it's just in my environment. But same thing, make sure we aren't carving those things up, make sure we aren't creating aversive events or activities in our learners' lives intentionally to try to teach these mans. That's my soapbox rant for you guys for today. <laughs> Getting manding under our control is what Skinner called mand training. So you might have a learner who is able to ask for things, but won't ask for things when they're supposed to. I see this a lot with echoics. So, you know, you have somebody who can echo. Like if I say ah and say ah and we're having a good time, they'll do it. But if I sit down and I look at them and I say, say ah, they're not going to do it. It's not under my control. They are calling the shots on it. Remember for manding, manding is one of those things that it has to be the person's motivation. So making sure when you're doing man training, you're following the learner's motivation, not what you think they should be wanting. A great example is kids who love to stem off very unique things. So, you know, I had a little girl who loved to stem off, you know, a few like her picture icons being in a row of five, she loved that. Like she loved seeing that like picture icon row filled up. And that was something that we used her natural motivation, her love for that. And she, you know, it helped regulate her to see that. So we taught her how to ask for that. Then thing like escape mans are a great way to teach those different things, but you shouldn't be creating situations that learners are wanting to get out of just to teach it. You should be teaching those natural occurring contingencies in their life where, you know, these things happen no matter what, it's going to be the typical day in their environment. Teach them the proper ways to communicate. Don't create new problems for them. Another thing that you can teach for MANs is CMOTs, so MAN for Missing Items. If you guys use the VB map, that's on level two of the VB map. Once you've got a solid vocabulary starting to build up, you might start teaching the learners to ask for things that are missing. I love this goal because it forces caregivers, ourselves, to take a step back and stop doing everything for that person. Starts to teach them to advocate for themselves to say, hey, I need something. Hey, something's missing. Hey, something's wrong. And I love this goal because it's so silly. It's like you'll give them an empty cup that doesn't have any water in it and they'll look at you and be like, huh? And that's when you teach them, hey, ask for water. You need water or juice. Same thing, like if I forget a straw, oh, here, sorry, your cup doesn't have a straw. Teach them to ask for a straw. Some things are advocating for themselves and speaking up. It's a huge goal. And you can do it for anything. It shouldn't be. I do not recommend running CMOTs and trying to teach that man for missing items for activities they don't want to complete because, again, that's not their motivation. So if you tell them to do a worksheet and you just don't give them their pencil but they don't care to do the worksheet, nothing's missing to them. They're, they're more happy because they're not being made to do this worksheet, so they're not going to request it, right? We know this. Another thing we've got occurring with man and man training is multiple control, convergent multiple control. It's controlled by an MO in prompts, visuals, echoics, use differential reinforcement to slowly eliminate the multiple controls to just the MO. 
this is where you're trying to teach a skill and you use prompting and the MO to get the child to do whatever. So for example, if you're trying to teach a child to ask for water, you might have them you know, rely on that prompt of you saying water and their MO, that multiple control, to get them to ask for water. Over time, you need to fade out to just that motivation so that way they're independently and spontaneously manding. And then we've got extended mans. This is another big concept, gotta know. Extended mans are accidental reinforcement and improper mand, essentially. A good example, I love this one, is when a BCBA that isn't too familiar with speech or communication will teach an early learner the man for more. I highly advise against doing this across the board. What happens with more just about every time in an extended mand is why you see the kid overgeneralize them more and they'll be like, more, more, you know, they'll just be saying the sign over and over and over and parents are giving them this, they're giving that, they're trying to figure out what the heck, you know, like the kids in the backseat signing more, so they're just like throwing toys at them, you know, do you need french fries, is it something you saw, is it, is it your shoe, like what is going on? Eventually, most parents know their kid pretty well, they're probably going to hit on that thing that that kid was wanting, so you've accidentally reinforced that mand of more, or it could be, you know, you're asking for a cup and you're giving, you know, the kid a Gatorade bottle. So they learn that if I sign the word cup, I'll eventually get the Gatorade bottle, even though we should be teaching different because Those aren't very close. Accidental reinforcement is happening there and you've got to be careful with that because it's not effective communication. Because once that child gets outside of that environment, away from that one caregiver and they're signing cup or manning for cup, and they really want Gatorade, we're gonna create some issues, we're gonna create some behaviors, and that's not gonna work, especially long-term. Also, there is a part in verbal behavior about relational frame theory. That all comes in here as well. I'm not gonna hit on that. I talked in the last podcast, so I'm gonna leave some things out. That is one of them, because I don't believe the task list wants you guys to know verbal behavior in terms of relational frame theory together. I don't think those things overlap, but we can hit on it in when we do cover cover relational frame theory later and we can kind of hit on it just a little bit if you guys disagree with me, but you let me know what you get from the task list and then if you think you should know it. I don't think so. I don't remember studying it personally, so we'd have to learn it together. It should be fun. All right, and then for man extension. So we've got two different types of man. So Skinner took some time to talk about mans that aren't clear, mans that we do without purpose. And this is where verbal behavior can get a lot of backlash. So there's, it's not like verbal behavior is concrete proof of this occurring and everybody believes in it and it's fact. Verbal behavior has quite a bit of people that disagree with it, especially in the SLP world. Real behavior isn't like fact, it's just the science that we practice and, and the things that we engage in. It's kind of how like Western medicine and Eastern medicine, like they're both valid. It's just there's some um, disagreements and you know differences in sciences and approaches and things like that. But for man extinctions, we have a superstitious mand and we have magical mands. A superstitious mand is saying a man to yourself that only gets reinforced by luck. This is like rolling the dice, the casino, you know, gambling, every, you know, like saying my sports team's gonna win, those mans that you make 
that there's no possible way that I was going to get it reinforced in a specific manner. It's just occasionally it's reinforced. And if you guys have been studying, you know that variable ratio reinforcement schedules are the most powerful reinforcement schedules. So when we're getting randomly reinforced on a unknown schedule, that's where we see superstitious man start to come up. You know, you roll that seven every once in a while, you draw, I don't know, is it, I don't know, go made. You, you draw a certain card in your card game every once in a while, like Uno, you draw that draw four and you're so happy like when you're manding to that deck, it's like, come on, give me that good card. That is the superstitious man. And then a magical man, a magical man is manning for something that is absolutely not possible. So this is like manning for your dog to fly to the grocery store and do your grocery shopping for you or for your glasses to just show up because you're running later. Your keys, like just keys appear in my hand. That is a magical man. There's no way it's going to actually happen, but you're requesting it anyway. In theory, it doesn't make sense when we look at like positive reinforcement and like why are we doing that? when we shouldn't do that because there's not a history reinforcement. That's why it's a magical mand. For the last thing that we've got for mans is pure mans and impure mans, or maybe improper mans, if we remember it that way. But they're mans that we have contingent on an SD or we're using an SD to evoke. This isn't proper manding because it's not solely on the MO. This would be like that multiple control because you're having a verbal prompt of an SD what do you want? If you are teaching a child to be dependent on that prompt in order to mand, you are not teaching them proper manding. It's not a pure man. A pure man is purely off the MO and that is it. You aren't looking at them. You aren't holding anything up. The item isn't present. You aren't saying, what do you want? It's just their MO. I'm sitting here. I'm thinking, you know, I'm kind of sleepy. I'm going to go get some coffee. That's a pure mand. Cool. All right, let's move on to tact. All right, for tact training. Remember, tact or a nonverbal stimulus is going to be evoking a tact, and tacts are going to be reinforced by generalized conditioned reinforcement. So it could be social attention, praise, be a lot of different things that we are reinforcing tacts with, but it has to be generalized conditioned reinforcers. Tacks are kind of under that same category of man manned training. Skinner also called it tact training. Exact same thing. We're teaching the skill of tacting. Remember, for tacting, uh, we can have our senses involved in tacting. So we can have our smells and things that we hear and taste. We can tact all of those things. Tacting gets really complex when we're trying to teach learners how to tact those things that are in our head. So tacting a headache or a tummy ache or feelings can get really complicated. We're gonna talk a little bit about how to do that. But you, when you're thinking about tax and what your learner knows and about tacting, can they tact a cat? Great. Can they tact a cat meow? Can they tact a cat if they feel a cat's fur? Or like, do they know that's an animal? Can they, um, can they smell their favorite food and tact that? Like, Making sure if we can say a kid knows a cat, do they know all the different features of a cat when they're tacting? Can they tell, you know, a meow separate from a bark in real life? Not saying, all right, meow, what animal is that? And then them tacting that that's a cat. 
which even that wouldn't even be a real tact either, but that's probably how we would run it. Can they tact a real meow, a real woof? Can they be walking down the street, hear a dog bark and go, mom, that's a dog. And mom goes, yeah, that's great. Can they do that? That's an important skill when we're talking about language and really applying and journalizing it. If they can answer off just your SDs, that's not a tact. Multiple control in terms of attacking. We are going to be looking at how language grows. We start to pull in different SDs. So the example that Cooper gives is we have a glass of water and we shake it and it's starting to spill and you say, oh no, your water's spilling out of your cup. There's a lot of different SDs and lots of different things that are happening there. So you're attacking that that's a cup. You're attacking that there's you know, water, if you say the water is spilling out, you're attacking the action of spilling, you're attacking the preposition of it coming out. Those are all different SDs and all different skills for attacking. So when you're looking at building a language and building vocabulary, and this is like the BB map, I know it breaks this down decently, but to really understand, making sure you can put those sentences together and have true sentence structure and building those different tacks and SDs is really complicated, but that's where multiple control comes in. You have to have multiple SDs in order to build that sentence, in order to have adjectives and adverbs and noun verb combinations. There has to be two SDs to indicate that, right? You might be wondering, can you have a manned and attacked at the same time, or does it have to be one verbal operant and the other verbal operant? Guess what? You can. You can have a manned and attacked at the same time, but you have to look at those variables. So, Again, this is where multiple control, it's kind of like a catch-all term when we're talking about multiple SDs and variations and these verbal operants. That's what I was talking about last week, like it gets much more complicated. So you'd have to know the learner and you'd have to know their motivation. Let's say I'm on a walk with my mom and I just, I love animals, I love birds, let's say. I'm gonna be more motivated to attack birds for two reasons. Maybe I love my mom's praise because she loves birds too. So she gets really excited when I attack birds. And you know, I'm more likely to attack the birds and get them right because you know, I'm getting more praise. We're looking at that differential reinforcement there. Lots of things that are occurring, but I'm more motivated to tact. So it could be both, or it could be motivated to tact because, so you can see how both of those verbal operands are in there. So like for example, I love when I go to the grocery store with my toddler, I love to tact all the different fruits because I want her to have a healthy relationship with food and to be eating a variety of food. So I'll go through and be like, this is a kiwi, this is a star fruit, this is a banana. Those aren't man's, but they are motivated by, my tact is motivated by my motivation. When you look at the verbal operant, and you're looking at what exactly is this, you have to look at those SDs verbal operants, so it might be mostly tacked with like a little sprinkle of the MO in there. That's where it gets complicated and that is outside of my repertoire of understanding because Skinner gets into that. For the exam, just know if there were something where it was like, can a, a verbal operant be a manned and attacked? It could in theory, but I think for the exam, you're going to rely mostly on just what we talked about last podcast when you're talking about what the verbal operands fall where. Does it have a verbal SD or does it not? Is it motivation? Is it what? I would stick to the simpler stuff. But just for you curious cats, if you want to explore, there's more. Like we talked about with the mans, a pyramid is a tact without a verbal SD. So if I say, 
What is that? That's not a pure man. That is an impure man. Impure with that prompt. If I have to do an echoic prompt in order to get you to attack something or I'm trying to do like a transfer procedure, those are all not true tact. A true pure tact is me seeing a plane in the sky and saying plane or a cow out in the cow field and telling my mom, gow. That's a pure tact. Cooper slash Skinner talks about how we can use tacting objects in the environment to slowly shape it or to teach that skill of tacting those internal feelings. So my, you know, head hurting, my throat hurting. First, I need to be able to tact a puppy. I need to be able to tact maybe other people's body parts and I can tact my own body parts and then eventually start talking about feelings and tacting, you know, those different pains and you know, pain avoidance and you know, tacting those emotions associated with it. There's a lot can go on there, but you can tact private events as well. And there's also some tact extensions you guys need to know. So first one, first one is a generic tact. So this is stimulus generalization. So this is tacting that that's a puppy, that's a puppy, that's a puppy, and that is not a puppy. That's a cat. Being able to tact and generalize across different puppies or different grandmas or different dads, making sure you can tact what is your dad and what's not your dad, what's a male and what's not a male, all that. T generic tact. Next one, next one is a metaphorical tact. That's tacting using a metaphor, saying like, wow, you're such a mess. Or saying you're as sad as a cowboy that lost his dog. This is just going to be that metaphor. Tacting that metaphor, you're tacting that problem, that sad feeling or that emotion or that mess or that event, you're tacting it. And then we have a metaphorical, metaphorical is making a note of some feature in your head that is not directly related to the tact. So if I am, I remember somebody's name based off their shape of their nose or that they wear glasses. I might remember in my head that that glassware is um, Jill. Glasses equals G. Jill equals G because she's spelled with a G-I-L. <laughs> but you guys get it. So it's making a note that's indirectly related to the actual thing. So it's kind of like you're tacting something that is equaling something else in your head. And then we have our solstice tact, which is using a slang word to tack something. So like a new slang word that I don't know what it means and you look it up is ritz. So I'm going to say, I'm going to make it up and pretend it means cool. So your car is so ritz or your house is so ritz or, you know, if you use, like when we were a teenager, we use a YOLO a lot. So tacting that situation or tacting those emotions and feelings using slang is going to be a solstice tack extension. And then this is about far as I'm going to get in the complexity of tacks. So you can tact your private events that have stimulus control. What that means is your head is hurting, you're going to be clenching your jaw, you can tact that jaw pain because that has stimulus control when your head's hurting. So it's more likely to occur when your head's hurting than not, and you're going to tact that feeling or action. And you can use tacting private nonverbal uh, behavior to help teach that um, internal events. So if you're talking about headaches, how I said, you know, you need to teach a puppy, teach body parts, teach other person body parts, and you can kind of generalize that to internal. Tacting those things that occur along with that headache. So if you know every time a kid starts getting an earache, you know they're going to start pulling at their ear, you can have them tack like, that's ear pain. You have them tack like, ow, ow. 
I don't know, whatever you decided to do, you can use that private event stimulus control to help teach that private event tacting. Yeah, like I said, that's as far as I'm going to get into it because it gets real complicated and that is about where I stopped understanding. I remember from our previous podcast, we have covert and overt behaviors, which are overt is observable, covert is internal. I think of this one as going into like a cove, like, you know, going inwards and then that one is internal, covert is internal, whereas overt is observable, operational, people can see overt behavior. So when you're starting to talk about those like private event tax, those words might come up as well. And then an important discrimination to know that duplic and codic, we're going to be talking about those ones next, understand that duplic is the much simpler verbal behavior compared to codic. So, so duplic has a coex, it has imitation, and it has copying text. For duplic, you don't have to learn any new skills. Like you have the verbal behavior or the skill that you're doing, but you're not learning any new language because I'm just echoing you. Obviously there's a lot of value in the new skills being taught to echo, but you're not learning a new sound. And same thing with copying text. I'm not learning how to read and write. I'm just learning how to copy what you're writing. I'm not coming up with anything new. I just have to learn those other skills, but those are outside of verbal behavior, like holding a pencil and making different shapes with my pencil. Duplex are much easier than codex. Codex are going to be learning how to write, how to, you know, reading and writing and, you know, comprehension skills. When you're looking at what to teach first, I would definitely start with duplex because of the simplicity of that. And that's why a lot of our assessment tools like VBMAP is like level one is a codex. Whereas like, you know, taking dictation is going to be like a level three skill or outside of the VBMAP most likely, but there is some writing and stuff in there, some reading comprehension in there as well, but you got it. And then another big thing to note is we have simple verbal discriminations like stop, walk, stand up. So there's one thing that you're controlling and that might be your body. So if you're stopping, walking, standing up, it's a simple discrimination. And then we have a conditional discrimination. Conditional discriminations are going to involve multiple components in your direction that you're giving. So an example of this might be touch the ball and you know you have an array of three there's multiple balls out you need to touch and you need to do a ball so there's like two components to that plus the array it could be you know stand up go throw your trash away that's gonna be a conditional discrimination because it's going to be contingent on other behaviors happening in order for the whole behavior the complex behavior to occur and then we have compound verbal discriminations can you find the big ball so this is when you're starting to bring in adjectives and adverbs you're going to have even more complex language. And you guys don't need to memorize these, but I would just understand that you have multiple levels of discriminations on a language building level. Like when you're applying it and you're wanting a kid to be able to find the ball, find the big ball, understanding that that is a very complex skill. There's other precursors and prereqs before that. And there's also simpler skills to be teaching before that as well. It's not an easy listener discrimination skill whatsoever. And then introverbals, so introverbals. If you are teaching little ones who don't have manned intact repertoires, introverbals, you can try. Introverbals are very hard to teach. So most, you know, typically developing kids start to get introverbals around two to three years old. They'll start to develop that skill, but it's very hard to teach it and focus it down besides the classic one, two you say three and then the conversation skills. It's so complex because pretty much anything can be an interverbal. Whereas like man, 
MO has to be happening in your verbal. You know, it's just my verbal SD that has to happen, no put put correspondence, and then you can have formal similarity. So looking at those situations and looking at intraverbals and teaching those, I always start with what's gonna be most helpful for that learner. What do they need? What conversation skills would be helpful? Personal information questions are always really good. So what's your name? How old are you? Those are important safety skills, being able to answer the basic questions about their environment, or maybe you know, like what they're wearing, or facts from the environment might be helpful. Things like that. You're gonna base it off the learner and their assessment tools and ages and the conversation skills, where they're at, what they need. But just understand, intervals are very complex. This is where like a solid supervision program can be really helpful in you making those decisions. Then we go from intraverbals and we can move into auto slitics, clitics. I don't know. I'm sorry, guys. I'm bad at these. We're going to call them auto clitics for now because that's how I've always read it in my head. These are tacting. These are going to involve a primary response such as it's raining today and a secondary response as like I think or I believe. It's tacting your understanding of the stimuli or the environment, you're giving more information on other verbal operands in the rest of your sentence. You're giving more information on you, what you're saying, but it's like a vague statement. It's always going to be like those carrier phrases, just giving more information. It's kind of Skinner's explanation of carrier phrases. Like why would we say, I think, and I believe, and I want, or I think. Like, believe me, they are wrong. Is giving you more information about the other verbal operands in my statement. There's no reason for me to say, believe me, I don't need to convince you when you think about like reinforcement and language. I should just be saying that sentence saying they're wrong and you either reinforce or you don't as a, you know, as a listener and that should be that. But this is an explanation of the autosolytics that occur. This one could definitely be in your exam so make sure you, you know, remember that one. And autosletics can occur through man's tax, intraverbals, they can occur across the board as you're not going to have just like autosletics with intraverbals. It can go in all of them. I'm not going to go into it because I want you guys to generalize that skill. It's, I think, and I feel all across the board regardless of the verbal operant. And then last thing I wanted to talk about is can you lose verbal behavior? And you might be thinking, no, maybe, I don't know. Yes, this is where dementia can come in. Or if you work with like the older population, you might be dealing with this quite a bit. This is where you practice a skill and you teach personal information questions. They can answer their name and tell you what school, but then you never work on it again. They're going to lose that verbal behavior. If a kid has a traumatic experience, they might not mand anymore because they might be too scared to, things like that. You can lose verbal behaviors. Don't let a question like that trip you up either. All right, and then we're going to go into our 10 practice questions. I'm going to go ahead and do them as a voiceover and read them from the list for you guys. I'm going to Q&A style it, and that is all from me on the video world. All right, guys, you ready to start our 10 questions? Question number one is, I just got back from a run. I'm looking around the pantry for my favorite protein bar. I look at my husband and ask him, where's my protein bar? What type of man is this? Mand for information. Question number two. I'm writing down the homework assignment my teacher is signing to me in class in ASL. Which verbal operand is this? Mm 
Yeah, taking dictation. Number three, duplex R. Yep, there are coex, imitation, and copying text. Number four, which verbal offerings have point-to-point -point correspondence and formal similarity? Yep, that'd be duplex. Number five, I'm going to give you an example and you're going to tell me what it is. I give them, yes, D, what is this? And I hold up a pencil asking my student. Yeah, if you're confused on that one, that's because there's not enough info. We don't know the listener's behavior, so we don't know if there's formal similarity or point-to-point -point correspondence. We need more information on that one. Number six, I think the half marathon is easy. An example of what? An autosolytic. I got that, I think, in there in the beginning. Number seven, I am copying your test answers, which verbal operant? Yes, copying text. Remember, somebody else's writing is verbal behavior. So don't think just because somebody didn't speak, we don't have enough information. If we have a speaker's output and a listener's input, we're good. Number eight. I'm filling out a questionnaire for my apartment lease. I look at my friend and ask, what is your old address? She says, 999 Wall Street Lane. Which type of verbal operant is this? Yes, ma'am, for information. If you thought it was intraverbal, remember, I had motivation to get something from my friend. And that makes it a man. Number nine, I'm looking at the menu at a restaurant. I say, I love these tacos. You say, me too, especially the vegan ones. Which verbal operant? Yeah, interverbal. And then number 10, can private events be verbal operants? The answer is, Yes. But thank you guys so much for listening to part one, hopefully, and part two of verbal behavior. Next week, we're going to be moving into some IOA. Yay! The fun stuff. We're going to move into some IOA. We're going to kind of pull a few more parts of task to see before we move into the graphs. I really want to make sure everything is done before we move into graphing because it is such a big one as well. It's crazy. So many big topics on the task list. Who knew? The graphing is a very complex one. There's a lot to it, especially when you start comparing and contrasting the different types of graphs and the different types of data collection methods and all that. It's exhausting. But we love our jobs anyway. I hope you guys have a great week. Thanks, guys. Bye.